Welcome to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. Today's message was originally preached on January 16th, 2022 by our lead pastor, Rod Heppel. Today, Pastor Rod preaches the second message in our winter 2022 sermon series entitled Messy Grace, Messy Truth. For more information about our church, check out sardisfellowship.com. You know, as we start a new year, I'm thinking about um, New Year's resolutions, stuff like that. One of the things I want to do is encourage you to start afresh in reading your Bible if you've kind of let that slip away. I'm going to be doing something new between now and Easter, and I want to invite you into it. It's a 90-day challenge because there's 90 days between this Sunday, January 16th, 91 days to April the 17th. And so I'm inviting you to read the entire New Testament between now and then. If you were to do that, it would take uh, about three chapters a day, which, you know, for the average person, that's about 15, 20-minute commitment to do that. And to, to have a little incentive, I put together a little brochure like this that you could pick up from the church if you want, or you can go to our website and uh, download it, just as a way of trying to keep you on track so that when Easter comes, you are ready with this fullness of knowledge of who Christ is and why he came and what he did for us to celebrate the resurrection. Now, um, there are no other prizes for this, right? The prize that you get is your deepening relationship with God that you're hearing his voice through his word, that you're applying that to your life and you're gaining the wisdom and you're growing in your faith. So may that be your challenge and may that be your reward as you consider doing this 90-day Bible reading uh, program. We're into our series called Messy Grace, Messy Truth. We started this last Sunday. If you were with us, you know about that. And it's all about being a part of God's mission in the world, in his world. And we are a part of it. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. To do what? To rescue us. To rescue us from what? You know, really, to rescue us from ourselves. To rescue us from our sin. To take us out of that and into Christ and to give us eternal life. That's his mission. And the reason why we've included the word messy here is because when we start to grapple with God's truth, and we realize that there are things in our life that don't actually line up with God's truth, it can get messy. You know, when we submit ourselves to him, we begin to see how complicated life can get. And when there's people out there that don't know Christ, who hear the good news of Christ, and they come to faith in Christ, they go through the same process that we have gone through ourselves or are going through ourselves. There's things that they begin to realize that they need to change. But one of the things I want us to note is that it doesn't all happen overnight. I mean, I think some things do. They change immediately. But there's other things that God begins to reveal to them. And it's in time that they start to see that these changes need to happen. But it's not always clear. It can be messy. I remember hearing stories about missionaries who went to serve in far-off countries. uh, These countries where they practiced polygamy. Especially if they were the chief in a village where it was expected of them that they would have multiple wives and multiple children. Because it was kind of a sign of their wealth and their readiness to lead. And then the missionaries would come with this gospel message, and soon they would find out that God's design for marriage was to be in a covenant relationship for a lifetime with one woman, not many women. And so they, they grappled with this. How do you undo what's already been done? And all of a sudden, for the missionaries, it wasn't so cut and dry as to what you're supposed to do in that situation. I mean, is it right to go and leave all the other wives? What are you going to do about all those children? Do two wrongs make a right? So you can see how this starts to get complicated. When God's truth intersects our lives and our lives begin to align up with his truth, that's when it starts to have that rub. 
by the way, a number of those chiefs chose to do this. They chose to remain faithful to the first wife that they married. They supported financially all the other wives and their children, but their, um, their sexual relations were only with that first wife. In the Gospels, we read about Jesus bumping up against all sorts of people who weren't really kind of like living the way God would want them to. We see examples of this over and over and over again that Jesus ate with sinners. And then it would describe some of these people. Uh, prostitutes and tax collectors. Roman soldiers who weren't very popular in Israel. Um, Samaritans and Samaritan women as we talked about last week. People who were sick and some who were untouchable like those who had leprosy. Jesus associated with these ones and he touched people who others wouldn't want to. He lived his life caring about those people who lived on the margins of society. You know, it's interesting that the accusation really that came against Jesus from the religious people or even those who were good Israelites was something along this line. That Jesus himself was contaminated by nature of the fact that he associated with those people. They said things like, if only he knew who these people were, then he would have nothing to do with them. But the truth of the matter is that Jesus did know who these people were. They were the very people who in God's eyes had value and dignity because they were made in his image. And they were the people that Jesus came to love, every last one of them. There was no other category. There was only people, people that God loved, people that Jesus would die for. Jesus went where the religious leaders would not go. Jesus ate with the people that they would not even be seen with. And Jesus touched the ones that no one would touch. And he referred to himself as a doctor, a doctor who had come for the sick. Now here's a good example of that in Matthew chapter 9. This is the calling of Matthew, who would be one of the disciples, but he was a tax collector. Now how do you think the other disciples felt about Matthew joining their team? I could kind of see them looking at him like, you're a traitor. I don't know that I want you on this team, you know. I don't want to be seen with you, Matthew. So here's how it goes. Matthew 9, uh, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, which was Capernaum, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him, and Matthew got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors, note the word many, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said, It is not the healthy who need a doctor, who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the right I have come, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. You know, for the person who doesn't see themselves as a sinner, or the person who doesn't see themselves in this way as being sick. They're not going to recognize the fact that they need a doctor. Jesus can't do anything for a person who does not see their need for him. The reason why mercy trumps sacrifice is because our sacrifice is not enough. There is nothing that we can do about our salvation by way of a sacrifice that would earn our favor with God. In fact, the only way in which we can get his mercy is by allowing the sacrifice that Christ has made to be applied to me. That's called grace, getting something I don't deserve. The only thing that can make you or me right with God, and the only thing that can make anyone else right with God, is the mercy 
that God has extended to each of us through his son, Jesus Christ. And if God has shown his mercy to me in that way, then that's what he expects of me to show to others. That's why he desires mercy, not sacrifice. You cannot earn God's favor, but you do receive it by placing your faith in Jesus, his son. It was this kind of intentionality that Jesus lived his life looking for those who were the sick. In fact, he was very intentional about not doing religion the way the Pharisees and probably many of the Israelites were doing it or thought that it was right. And he wasn't just catering to himself and his own disciples. He was on a mission. And it was God's mission for what Christ had for him in this world. And I think that if we understand that Jesus was intentional about being on his mission and not being distracted from it, then we need to do the same. If we are not intentional about being on mission for Jesus in this world, then I think we're going to default to living and thinking more like the Pharisees did than what Jesus did. The Pharisees assumed that they were close to God because of their religious behavior, but they weren't. They weren't close to God at all. And I think that if we're not careful, we will fall into the same kind of trap where we think we're better than others and we're pretty good people because of our religious practice. Maybe because we give money to the local church or maybe because we do kind things to other people or maybe because we show up here. But is our heart truly in keeping with Jesus or are we just kind of doing enough religious practice thinking that we're closer to God because of it? We always want to be moving closer to the heart of Jesus. And, and if we are moving closer to the heart of Jesus, I think that's when we're going to start to see that life gets messy, that there's this tension between this, this love, this grace, and the truth of God. Maybe this actually should be the normative thing for us rather than the exception that we're living in these tensions. Maybe it's not happening enough in our lives. Um, maybe we need to assess if we're actually closer to the heart of Jesus than we are to just being like the Pharisees who were just being religious. I shared with you last week that our staff each year set some goals. And in particular, we talked about this idea of a golden thread where we would try to look at one thing, the one thing that if I were to do could make the greatest impact in the life of the church or an organization. So this is what I wrote back in September for myself, that my golden thread was to create a culture in our church family that is more concerned about loving people to Christ than catering to others. What, what I'm trying to say is that if I, as your pastor, ever get to the place where I care more about catering, catering to our preferences inside the four walls of this church than I am about reaching the world around us and helping us collectively stay on track with that, then I, I'm afraid that I have failed you. I have failed God. I have failed the calling that he's placed upon the church. Now, I know that this can sound a little bit edgy, but I'm actually just trying to speak the truth. I'm not trying to be edgy. I'm trying to be clear. And I'm trying to be clear because I believe that that's what God has called us to, that we are to be about his mission in this world, and his mission is all around us. Wherever you live and work and play, you're coming and you're going and you're doing of life, that's where our lives engage in the mission of God. And the reason why we have to be intentional about this is because it's a hard mission. And I believe it's a hard mission to actually keep in focus or else we begin away from it. I am the one that you've called as your lead pastor. 
and I'm trying to take serious the calling that God places on the church. And so I don't want us to fail in this mission. It's why we're here. And I want to remind us that it's going to get messy. Because if we are faithful to the mission of Christ, and if we are faithful to do it the way that Jesus did, that he came full of grace and truth, holding those two in tension, then that's when it's going to get difficult. That's when we're going to feel that tension and the messiness of life. I told you last week that the title of this sermon series came from two books that I read earlier uh, in this fall. One called Messy Grace, the other Messy Truth, hence the title of the sermon series. Uh, they were written by Caleb uh, Kaltenbach, and he's a pastor, an evangelical pastor in Los Angeles. Now, Caleb's story is all about messy grace, messy truth. I shared this with you last week, but if they're just, just joining us now, I want you to have this context. Uh, within his home, he lived out this tension of the grace and truth factor. Uh, when he was quite young, his parents divorced, and when his mom went to remarry, she remarried not a man, but a woman. And he was basically raised by a gay mom with his, his mom's partner, and then by his single dad at the time who he got to see on weekends. But later on, when he was around 19 or 20 years old, his dad also came out as being gay. So you can see that Caleb grew up in a home, uh, first of all, the challenge of divorce, but then these other factors. And he was living out this grace and truth principle in his own home for this reason. None of it would have been messy had Caleb never met Jesus, but he did. At 16 years old, he went to a Bible study because he wanted to prove it all wrong, and he met Christ. And he met the one who loved him so much that Christ saved him from his own sins. Well, now he had a conflict within him. How was it that he was going to have these convictions about the truth of who God was and how God has made us? How does he hold on to the conviction of what God's truth is as it relates to what he sees in front of him with his parents' marriages and relationships? Because it wasn't the design of God. It wasn't a marriage of one man and one woman in a lifelong covenantal relationship. But he still loved his parents with all his heart. And so Caleb walked this journey, and I think that he is someone on the inside that can help us understand how to do this. Loving and accepting his parents for who they were was his goal, while not at the same time affirming their alternate lifestyle. One of the most amazing aspects of Caleb's story is that after 20-plus years of living this truth out in love with his parents, he got to see both his mom and his dad come to faith in Jesus Christ. And that is absolutely beautiful. Messy grace, messy truth. Now, out of the book comes these principles, and basically I'm just looking at the biblical principles from the book that apply to how we engage with anyone in our culture who doesn't know Jesus. Anyone. I don't care if it's whatever ethnicity or gender or understanding of sexual orientation or whether they're rich or they're poor or anything like that. Whoever God has placed in this world, this is our mission field. These are the people that Jesus came to love and reach, and the principles of this book really help us understand how to be disciples of Christ, living in what we would call a post-Christian nation. Now, last week, we looked at this. Jesus came full of grace and truth. That was John chapter 1. And we talked about how it wasn't grace or truth, but rather the two together and holding them in tension. And that when you did hold them together in tension is typically when you're feeling something, and that feeling that, that you're having is actually love. Why? Because if you didn't care to tell them the truth, then you wouldn't care about being rejected by them. And then if you didn't care, uh, uh, I might have got that a bit wrong, but put it like this. 
if it's all about the grace, then you'll never tell them the truth. And if it's all about the truth, then probably you're approaching it without the love and the grace that's needed. So those two need to be held in tension. And that was what we were looking at last week. A number of you, by the way, wrote me emails or told me your stories, uh, shared about the fact that that idea of holding those two in tension is important because we do have these tendencies to lean toward one side or the other. I'm all grace and I never get around to actually sharing the truth or I'm all truth and I actually am not very gracious with people. And so I think that's great that you're wrestling through that. Here's what we're looking at today, though. We're looking at pursuing others as God does, as God pursues others and as God pursues us, and he does that in love. The question I'm asking is, to what length are you willing to go to have or keep influence in someone's life? Because that's what you're really doing when you extend grace to someone, right? When you extend grace to someone, you are intentionally trying to keep a door open, relationally speaking, so that you can still have influence in their life, that you might still point them to Jesus. And you know as well as I do that sometimes that's a very long road to walk. How much are you willing to sacrifice to keep a relationship alive so that when the time comes, you can help that person find Jesus? How uncomfortable are you willing to feel by being in a place where you get to know people who are really, truly different than yourself. I don't think many of us go looking for that. I'm actually very uh, proud of Rob Schaff, our discipling pastor here at Sardis Fellowship, who's into graphic arts and stuff like that, writes comics and stuff. He's a part of a group of people in that world that predominantly do not believe in God or, or value the Christian values. And Rob intentionally stays a part of that because he wants to show these people that, hey, there are Christians. That, that have a similar hobby, that love God and care about you as well. How uncomfortable are you willing to be to stay in a friendship with someone that might make you look bad to the religious or godly people that you usually keep company with? And how long are you willing to persist in praying for someone who seems to be resistant to Jesus and it feels like their life will never changed, change? Does it feel like uh, maybe it's not worth it? Have you stopped praying for them? You know, a story in the life of our church is that of Ernie Charlton. Uh, Maria attends our church family here. Ernie passed away four and a half years ago. But his story kind of goes like this. Maria had been faithfully praying for her husband for years, like over 30 years, since the time she became a Christian, over 30 years, praying for her husband, Ernie. She would invite him out to any church function that was going on, and at times he would come. She just continued to quietly but lovingly, you know, um, try to help Ernie understand his need for Christ. But nothing seemed to change. Not until she asked God to move in Ernie's heart that he would say yes to coming to a Bible study group that she was going to be a part of. She had done many on her own, but in this time, she wanted Ernie to be a part of it too. So she invites her husband to come to a Bible study group at Chris and Ruth Goodall's house. Um, Ernie says to her, well, you know I'm not a Christian, but because you want me to go, I'll come along with you. And five months later, it happened. At 71 years old, and after 30 years of Maria praying for her husband and many other people too, Ernie put his faith and trust in Jesus Christ. And then he was baptized in a stream that runs through their property with his family and friends watching in amazement that God had pursued this man for 71 years until he finally said yes to Jesus. You know, Maria told me, that it was such a beautiful thing to see the change that came in him 
and in their relationship as together they followed Christ. Now, that's an example of God pursuing, pursuing us. And I, I hope that you know that he pursues you too. And the lesson for us is that's how he wants us to actually pursue others. The Bible is very clear that God has pursued us in love. It's not just uh, as a project, right? But in love. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This is the demonstration of his love, which is his pursuit of us. They go together. Immediately, my mind pictures Jesus hanging on the cross, suffering, excruciating pain, about to die, and he utters these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. That's the extent that Jesus was willing to go to for you and for me and for anyone else and for everyone else. What are we willing to do? One of the stories that captures the pursuit of Jesus for others is the story of Zacchaeus found in Luke chapter 19. Now, I don't know if you remember the story of Zacchaeus, but he was a tax collector in Jericho. Actually, he was a chief tax collector, and it says that he was very wealthy. And you know that he got that wealth through kind of like extortion right? Charging people more than he should have. Uh, he was also very short, um, and he was curious. He wanted to see Jesus who was coming through Jericho, but for the crowds, he couldn't see him. So he climbs a sycamore tree. And of course, as uh, God would have it, Jesus is passing under that tree, and he stops, and he looks up, and he says to Zacchaeus, come down. I must come to your home today. <laughs> well, I'm sure that shocked a lot of people who uh, never would have expected anyone to want to go to the home of a tax collector, let alone the chief tax collector. In fact, they started to mutter to themselves and say that he's gone to be the guest of a sinner. That's how they were viewing Jesus. Yes, that's right. He's gone to be the guest of a sinner. Not only going in to Zacchaeus' house, but actually sharing a meal with him. This, this idea of friendship and hospitality and intimacy because you're sharing a meal together. Who could do that? Well, Jesus did. To what extent was he willing to go to influence Zacchaeus? He knew what people were thinking. He knew what people were saying, but he didn't care. Or should I say that he cared more about being on mission for God than he did about what other people thought about him? He cared more about what God thought than what people thought. And I think that's a good lesson for us to learn as well. So what happened? Zacchaeus gets up and he says, Lord, look. Here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor, and if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. What's going on here? This is an act of repentance. It is a, an action that is displaying the heart, that something has changed inside of him by nature of being with Jesus. And then Jesus makes this statement where he says, Today salvation has come to this house. Because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the son of man, which is a reference to Jesus himself, for the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. And that's what Jesus is still doing today. He is seeking and he's saving. He is pursuing you with love. The world says things like, you're not good enough. And God says, hey, I made you in my image. Your own thoughts condemn you through your actions and what you see about yourself to say the same thing. I'm not worthy. And Jesus said, I gave my life for you. 
And in fact, the truth of the matter is about God demonstrating his love for us while we were still sinners, is that Christ would have come and died on that cross and rose again if you were the only person on this planet. You know, there are many New Testament examples of God pursuing us. In Luke chapter 15, it gives three stories in a row. These are stories that Jesus told to make this very point, that God is the one who is seeking to save the lost. The first one is about a shepherd who lost a sheep. The second one is about a woman who lost a coin. And the third one is about a father whose son chose to leave. And in essence, he lost his son. It's called the prodigal son. And seeing as how Rob Schaff preached on the third one um, just a few weeks ago before Christmas during our Advent series when he was preaching on parties, I'm not going to look at that one this morning, although it's a fantastic fit for this message as well. I will just simply look at the first two of Luke chapter 15. So let's read that together. Notice again some of the similar language. This is the third time we're going to hear this language about Jesus eating or um, uh, being with tax collectors and sinners and that sort of thing. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. So that's the context again. He's hanging out with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. Then Jesus told them this parable. Suppose one of you has a hundred sheep and loses one of them. Doesn't he leave the 99 in the open country and go after the lost sheep until he finds it? And when he finds it, he joyfully puts it on his shoulders and he goes home. Then he calls his friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I found my lost sheep. I tell you that in the same way, there will be more rejoicing in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who do not need to repent. That's story one. Story two is very similar. Parable of the lost coin. It says this, suppose a woman has 10 silver coins and loses one. Does she, does, does she not light a lamp, sweep the house, and search carefully until she finds it? And when she finds it, she calls her friends and neighbors together and says, Rejoice with me. I have found my lost coin. In the same way, I tell you, there is rejoicing in the presence of the angels of God over the one sinner who repents. I don't think we can miss the point that is being made by Jesus to those Pharisees. They don't think that the one, the ones who are the least amongst them, the ones who are in the margin of society are worth it. You have 99, why go save the one? You don't need to. And Jesus is like saying, God seeks the one. The one you wouldn't care about, God does. And that's what he's calling us to do, is to care about those same ones. God is the one who pursues. He's the shepherd. He's the woman. He goes to find that one lost sheep, which means that, you know, he leaves the 99 in safety, but he goes out and risks his own life to find that sheep. The woman doesn't just kind of casually look around her house. No, it says she was carefully. I mean, she's lifting up furniture and she's sweeping the house. She's trying to find that coin. So there's intentionality about the shepherd and the woman until they find what was lost because it's of so much value. And I think that's important for us because we often don't feel that way. We do not believe or feel like we are valuable to God. God is the one who seeks like that for you and for me. We are that one. And then notice, too, that he calls people to repentance here, to repent from their sin. And when they do, he throws a party. And I just love that picture. I think it's an absolutely amazing picture that God is throwing a great big party when one person turns and trusts in Jesus. Now think about it, if you've ever lost something and you found it, you know that feeling. I mean, I've lost many things in my lifetime and lots of them I've never found. 
But those once in a while times, when I actually find the thing that was lost, I can't believe it. That's my first thought is I cannot believe it. And, and you go into this sense of excitement because you're just so happy to have that thing back again. Now, if you could take that and just ramp it up tenfold, a hundredfold, a thousandfold, whatever. We're talking about humans. We're talking about people made in the image of God. And when one of them is found, when one of them realized that Jesus Christ came for them, when one of them know firsthand the love of God for them, that he's been pursuing them and seeking them, and the truth of that hits their hearts, there is this massive party in heaven. And God invites all of us to join in that celebration that we too would rejoice along with him. That's how God feels about you when you repent and turn back to him. Your creator, your redeemer, your savior, your Lord. Maria said this about Ernie. She kept praying for him and trusting that God would change his heart. She said, as long as there's breath, there's hope. Oh, that's so true for any one of us. As long as there's breath, there's hope. Do you know the love of God that he has for you and that he has pursued you in order to find you, that he intentionally left the 99 to go seeking you, that he risked his life that you and me might have life? Because here's the connecting dot. If we actually don't know the grace and the love of God that he has shown towards us, then we're not going to know how to express that same grace and love to someone else. It can work against us in two different ways. One, we can think, well, we're not that bad. God didn't have to do that much to save me. Yes, he did. You just don't know the depth of your own sin yet. It took the dying of Christ on the cross in order for you to be saved. That's how much he loved you. That's what it actually took. Or it could maybe be a different sense where you're like, I just don't feel like I'm worthy. That can't be true of me. Yes, it is. Every single person is made in the image of God, and we are valued in his sight, and he has loved us that way. God has pursued us, no matter who we are, or how messed up we are, or how messed up we think we are, or how much we mess up again and again. God is the one who pursues, and he expects that those of us who know the joy of being the recipients of that pursuing and that grace in our lives, that we would now extend that towards others and pursue others in the same way. But I don't want you to mishear me when I'm talking about being on mission for God and pursuing others as God pursues us. This isn't about treating people as projects or objects. No, it's about treating them in love, valued, the same way that God loves and values people. If we see people as the problem, or as we see people as the enemy in society, then we will never see people the way God sees people. He sees people as the one that he would leave the 99 to go and love. And that's what he's inviting us into as well. The gospel isn't about who God is against. It's about who God is for. And we need to have that mindset as well. See, if our heart is going to draw close to Jesus, then we're going to be stretched and things will get messy. We will have to step out of our comfort zone if we're truly going to draw close to the heart of Jesus. We are going to be in relationships and friendships and situations that are not the ones we would choose. We will feel uncomfortable. I uh, really like the story of Pearl Life Renewal. Um, the story, really, of Joan Goosen. This is a bit of her story. She's going to be joining us uh, February 27th to tell it in more detail, but I just want to capture it in a nutshell. Uh, she said, I was a middle-aged woman living a comfortable 
simple middle class life here in Chilliwack. And one day I'm driving through downtown Chilliwack and I hear God's voice speak to me because I look on a street corner and I see a prostitute. And I hear the voice of God in my head say, I want you to help them. And she just thought it wasn't true, but she couldn't shake the thought. And in time, it was true. And she felt that calling so strong. But she thought to herself, who am I? I don't know anything about doing this. This will stretch me out of my comfort zone. And from that, she began the ministry called um, Pearl Life uh, Renewal, the Pearl Life Renewal Society. And then as an extension of that, just recently, the Pearl Life Place, which is a house for up to six women who have been prostitutes who are wanting to find a new life to come and get the help that they need to study through a program and get a new life. And, you know, I advertise this right around the first week of January because the offering that we took up that Sunday, we sent a gift of $1,500 to Pearl Life Renewal Place so that they could buy desks and chairs so that the women have a place to do their studies. And what a blessing that was to be able to do that. Be in prayer for them. And as I said, Joan Goosen will be here in a few weeks to share more about that story. But that's what it's going to take to be christ to our world, to bring Jesus to those who don't know Jesus, we are going to have to be in places that we don't feel comfortable. We're going to be stretched. Now, it doesn't always look like starting a ministry of prostitutes. I get that. But it can be out of our comfort zone to simply talk to a neighbor or someone that's at the, the gym, when you can get back to going to a gym, to, to reach out and talk to someone that maybe we just simply never talk to. I don't know what it looks like for you or for me, but we should pursue others like our Heavenly Father pursues us. And if we're going to do so, it will take us out of our comfort zone. The Apostle Paul said this about himself, I have made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. So the question I'm asking is, what are you willing to do? How far are you willing to go to keep influence in the life of a person that you are trying to point to Jesus? Because that's when it gets uncomfortable. You know, we all have someone in our life, maybe we've kind of given up on them. Maybe we've stopped praying for them and our persistence in prayer has waned. Maybe we no longer um, make the call or reach out or invite or whatever it might be. Maybe there's someone in particular that God is asking you to once again to pursue in love and grace to bring the truth of God to them. Let's pray. Father, this is a challenging message because it's not just about knowing something. It's about being the kind of people who do something that is in keeping with your heart for this world. And I would pray that you would move us to action, that we would each be mindful of who it is that you've placed in our lives that you are asking us to reach out to. Give us faith to believe that when we take that step, that you will show up and you will open doors and you will make us a blessing to others. Help us in our weakness because in many situations and conversations, we don't know what to do. We don't know what to say, but you've promised us in your word that when we're faithful, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you give us what we need in that moment. So I ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's some discussion questions I'd like to leave with you to discuss at this time. Do you have people in your life that don't know the good news of Jesus, and have you stopped pursuing them? Secondly, what is something that you could do to be more intentional about pursuing someone who does not yet know Jesus? And thirdly, what do you think it would look like if the culture of Sardis Fellowship was to care more for the lost than to catering to ourselves? What might have to change for this to be true? So there's some challenging discussion questions for you. And I also want to remind you that we're doing the 90-day challenge. So uh, if you want one of those 
brochures to encourage you to read the whole New Testament between now and Easter Sunday. You can stop by the church and pick one up this week or go to the website and download it. God bless you. Have a great week. And I really do hope that we'll see you back here next Sunday. Thanks again for listening to the Sardis Fellowship Sermon Podcast. For more information on Sardis Fellowship, please check out sardisfellowship.com.